Wildwood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. I'm really excited that, that we have the chance this morning to talk about the opportunity that we have to introduce those around us to Christ. The opportunity we have to invite other people to be included in what God is doing um, around you. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I, I want to just mention the fact that, that we, we show this story today, because this, this is my story, but it's, it's not any more important than your story. You know, in this room right now, this is a room full of stories. Um, no one any better than the other, but God has worked in a number of different ways to have brought each of you here. Um, just out of curiosity, if, if you are here because at some point in the past, somebody invited you to come, I mean, not, you didn't just drive by, you didn't just, um, you know, find us on the internet, but some person said, hey, why don't you come to the wild? If you're here because of that was your initial connection, raise your hand. There's lots of stories like the one you just saw on the screen. Um, that ought to inspire us to think about what God might want to do through some simple invitations in your life and in mine. Um, before we do that, before we look into God's Word together today, though, let me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for today. I, just, I thank you so much for just a beautiful spring day and a great chance to come together and to worship with your people. Father, um, there's no place I would rather be right now than, than with uh, this group of people looking at your Word. And Father, I pray that you would just, uh, through the work of your Spirit, um, empower the words that I say. Father, and that it would, you would also just come through and, and illuminate your, your text for us today, that we might see and hear from you and not from me. And Father, I pray that you would just protect me from saying anything you wouldn't want said, but if I do say something you wouldn't want said, I pray it would just quickly be forgotten. But the words that I would share today, Father, that you would want us to hear, I pray that we would remember them and we would believe them, we would walk forward in them from this place in faith we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. We thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to talk today about this issue of inviting others to, to join us as a church, about introducing those in our spheres of influence, our friends, our families, our coworkers, our acquaintances, introducing them to our Savior. And we're going to, we're going to do that by looking at a story. And the story we're going to look at is found in the book of John in chapter 4, and it's a story of Jesus interacting with a woman at a well in the area of Samaria. And I believe that Jesus had the events of John 4 play out the way that he did, and he had John write it down in his gospel because he wanted people like us on mornings like this to, to look at these sections of Scripture and to understand more about how he wants to involve us in reaching those around us uh, for him. And he wanted to emphasize our role as one of being someone who introduces people to the Savior. So if you've got a Bible, open up to the book of John chapter 4. We're going to camp out there. Uh, it's, it's actually a 42-verse uh, section that we're going to look at today, and we're going to do that in, in just a few minutes. 
And so if I race right past your favorite verse in those 42, I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance. Uh, but, but what I want to do is I want to look at some of the things as I read this passage this week that God kind of highlighted for me as significant and important for us to look at this morning. Uh, and really what we're going to see today is we're going to see four things, I think, from John chapter 4, four things uh, that maybe will help us to understand how God wants to use us in the lives of those around us. Um, And we're going to see that in John 4. The first thing we're going to see is this. We're going to see we have something to offer that people need. We have something to offer that people need. We see this in John 4, the first 15 verses. Uh, Let's let's read them and see where, where we see that idea. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, He left Judea, and he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, I think this is an interesting little intro to this story. It's interesting for a number of reasons. One, it gives us the geography that Jesus was was dealing in, the the stage on which these events were unfolding. Jesus was down in Judea, which is in the southern part of of the nation of Israel, and, and Jesus was down there in that area. We know from John chapter 2 that He actually was in the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus had been ministering in Jerusalem, and then He was ministering in the area of Judea, and now He wants to go back home to the area of Galilee, but in order to get to Galilee from Judea, you had one of two options. You could either take the long way around, or you could take the shortcut, and the shortcut would take you right through the heart of an area known as Samaria. So Jesus, who had been in Jerusalem, went and ministered in the area of Judea and ultimately went to the area of Samaria where He was declared the Savior of the world. If you're familiar with Jesus' commission of Acts 1-8, when He said, you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Jesus was merely proclaiming something that He had already lived out for His disciples in their early days. In John 4, we see Him moving from Jerusalem to Galilee, passing through this area of Samaria. Now, I mentioned there were two ways to to get from Jerusalem to Galilee. There was the shortcut that went through Samaria, and there was a long way around the barn. Well, why would anybody take the long way through the desert? Well, the reason why is because Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans. They didn't like them at all. They thought that the Samaritans were were sellouts. The Samaritans were largely the descendants of the northern tribes after the split kingdom of Israel, and from about 700 B.C. on, they had they had uh, uh, when when their, their nation had basically collapsed and their religion had collapsed, and they had mixed truth with error in terms of the Old Testament. They accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses was their only prophet. And they had their own places and traditions of worship. They also had intermarried with Gentiles in the surrounding areas, which was a no-no for the Jewish people at that time. And so the Samaritans were a despised people, and Jews would go out of their way to avoid them. And it's to this people that most would try to avoid that Jesus walks right into the middle of their area. He could have gone around, and people would have understood why, but Jesus went right through the heart of Samaria. And the reason why was he had an appointment to keep at a well 
near the city of Sychar. It says in verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour would have been about noon. So about noon in a, in a desert, arid climate, Jesus is walking through this hilly area. He's hot, and he's tired, and he's thirsty. So it's not a surprise that we find him leaning against the well outside the city of, of Sychar, in, in John chapter 4. As a matter of fact, this is one of those verses that indicates for us a lot of the humanity of Christ. I mean, Jesus got hungry, he got thirsty, and on hot days, when he's out for a long walk, he needed a drink of water. And he didn't always magically conjure it up. He would go and get drinks of water the way other people would. They would go to water sources like wells, and they would get water from these places. And so Jesus goes to this well, and he's leaning against the well about the sixth hour. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? In other words, this is really weird that you're talking to me right now, strange man, because I don't know you. You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, and we don't normally talk, and you're a man, and I'm a woman, and this is really violating some scruples here. Why are you talking to me? And Jesus says, because I want a drink, and you have a bucket. Could you please help me in getting a drink of water? Jesus answered her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Very telling statement. It's very telling because Jesus, who is thirsty and hot and tired, asked this woman for a drink, not necessarily just because he wanted something from her, but because he wanted something for her. Jesus is telling her, you know, I have something to offer you that you really need that goes way beyond even your wildest imaginations. I have the ability to offer you this thing that is known as living water. See, Jesus was, was playing on the fact that there was something that we need that is known as water. Our physical bodies need water. Survival experts have said that you can live, there's this thing called the rule of threes. You can live for three minutes without air. You can live for three days without water. You can live for three weeks without food. I mean, water is really important. We can only go three days on the planet without it, or, or our body will start to suffer adverse effects, uh, ultimately that could lead in death. I mean, we are dependent creatures on water. Water is something that our physical bodies needed. Water is something Jesus needed as a human son of God sitting at the well of Sychar. He needed water. We were dependent creatures on it. But Jesus turns this as an analogy and says, you know, just as our physical bodies need water, there's something I'm going to offer you that your soul needs as much as our bodies need water. It's this thing called living water. Well, she's not quite following where he's going with this. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Uh, they think that the well of Jacob was about 150 feet deep at this point. 
He has no rope. He has no bucket. He's like, how is it that you who are asking me to get your water are suddenly going to magically appear with living water for me? Just where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. I think it's really funny. She's like, hey, look, we all go back to Jacob, okay? You know, he, she is, she's kind of goading Jesus a little bit with that. Like, who do you think you are? Demanding water and then promising things you can't deliver. But Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water of Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus was offering not something that the body needed. He was offering something that her soul needed. Jesus was offering not just something that, she needed, that, 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 that he needed or that she needed in order to take the edge off for a few hours and then you would need another drink. He was offering something that would satisfy our soul's forever. He was offering life itself, and the key to that, the key to unlocking that life was not a bucket and a rope. It wasn't a cup. It wasn't any kind of dispenser, but it was the person who was standing before her. Jesus said, I can connect with you in such a way that life itself will flow forth from you, and not just life for the here and now, but life for the forever an eternal kind of life. Jesus was offering her something that she desperately wanted and needed. She's thinking, wow, you mean you're offering me something that means I never have to go back to this well and and draw from it again? You're offering me something that will give me life? This This is an amazing offer. That's what the woman is thinking at that point. She doesn't know fully at this point whether she can trust the man, but if he's offering to provide a gift that great, why would she refuse? Because he was offering something that she ultimately needed. You know, Jesus offers us something that we need. You thought about that? He's giving us what we need. He's giving us life itself. You know, we are a people who are uh, fascinated with life. We want to cling to life. We want to maximize life. We'll do whatever we can to preserve the appearance of youth because the appearance of youth allows us to feel like we're clinging more tightly to life. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll dye hair, we'll get makeup, we'll, we'll have surgeries, we'll, we'll do whatever we can in order to appear young. You know, I, I've thought about this in my own life as I'm beginning to get older. I've thought about getting a fake ID going the other direction, right? Um, I mean, we, we want to be young because we want life. We are fascinated with life. And and Jesus comes to a people who are fascinated with life, but who are incredibly encumbered with death. We're fascinated with life. We want it, but but death is right at the door. Our bodies are decaying every day. You crest a hill at some point, and then you start heading down. Every day we hear about someone else that that, that we know or we were connected to that contracted a, a terrible illness or can no longer do what they they once did or have even passed away. To a people who are, are fascinated and desire life but are constantly confronted with death, Jesus comes and says, I have the fountain of youth. 
I have the place where you can have eternal life. And I'm not going to hide it on a hillside in a valley someplace. And I'm not going to place it in a cave guarded by booby traps and medieval knights where only Indiana Jones can find it. But I'm going to place it inside the lives of those who are connected to me. This welling up within them would be the source of life itself. Jesus was saying that your problem is not a a physical problem and a physical death, but ultimately our problem is a spiritual problem. We don't just need something to disguise our physical appearance. We need something to improve our spiritual appearance as we translate from this life to the next. And Jesus said, this living water that I'm going to place within you will take away the wrinkles and the spots of your sin and enable you to live a free and open relationship with God based on what I am offering to give you, to place inside you. Jesus is saying, what you most need, I'm willing to freely give to you. You know, I don't know where you're at in the journey today, but, you know, some of you may be here, and you may desperately want to know that your sins are forgiven. You may desperately want to know that you have a future beyond the grave. You may desperately want to know that life is about more than what you're living. If that's the case, know that the secret is not found in a hillside or a cave, but the secret is found in the person of Christ who says, my death on the cross is sufficient for you. I can fill you with living water to eternal." And for those of us who have already come to know that and have already embraced that by faith, we need to be encouraged that when we talk to others about Christ, we're not talking to them about something that is bad for them. We're not talking to them about something that they don't ultimately want at at some level. We're talking to them about what they want the most, which is life itself. Jesus said he wants to fill us with life. We have the opportunity to share that life with others. The first thing we see is that we have something to offer that people need. We need to remember that. Second thing, the something we have to offer is a someone. The something we have to offer is a someone. Verses 16 to 26, we keep moving here. So Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. In other words, she says... I would love to have this living water that brings forth eternal life. And Jesus said, in this culture, it would be inappropriate for me to give to you a gift as a man to a woman without your husband present. So go get your husband, bring him back, and I will give you this gift. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Okay, so maybe Jesus wasn't just living up to a cultural norm. Maybe he's setting the table for a supernatural revelation. Jesus is revealing to her something that as a newcomer to town, Jesus just walked up that morning. There's no way he could have had access to that kind of information. And so Jesus makes this declaration, and it absolutely wows the woman. The woman said in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, this is a tremendously uh, big admission on the part of the woman. Uh, Samaritans did not believe in prophets after Moses. 
As a matter of fact, uh, they rejected the rest of the Old Testament, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we, we read this and we think, what's well, in the Bible? Of course, there's prophets on every corner. There's prophets everywhere. Everybody talked about the prophets. There was the prophet shop and the, the prophet mail order, whatever. You know, we think prophets were everywhere. But the reality was that Samaritans lived in a world that they didn't talk about prophets. When, when the woman hears these things shared about her life, she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. What she's saying is, oh, my word, how do you know this about me? This clearly has come to you through supernatural revelation. The fascinating thing that, you know, I mentioned that they didn't believe in other, in other prophets. They, they did believe that there would one day be one other prophet, the Messiah, who would one day come. They tied it back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. Her admission that Jesus appeared to be a prophet actually was speculation on her part that he was the Messiah So what does she do next? Does she probe further about how he knows these things about her? Does she lay bare her secrets and, and ask a path to forgiveness? No. She changes the subject, which is what a lot of us do when we're convicted, right? She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And we've had this happen to us before. You start talking to somebody about spiritual things, and they bring up the dinosaurs, or they bring up whatever their issue is, their hobby horse issue. They want to they divert the conversation from themselves and God and place it on something else. The woman is bringing up a question about worship because the Samaritans had a place where they worshiped, the Jews had a place where they worshiped, and she thought, this guy obviously knows spiritual things. I'm going to take the conversation away from me and put it on something else that's more comfortable for me but still interesting and relevant for his identity. She says this, Is this on this mountain or is it in Jerusalem where we should worship? Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You see, she tried to change the conversation away from herself and God to a theological issue that was out here at arm's length. But Jesus is not satisfied with the conversation staying at arm's length. Jesus turns the conversation back to the person of God and her opportunity to connect with Him in worship. You see, Jesus wasn't offering a something, an answer to some, some questions that were out here. He was offering someone, the person of God, that she could connect to and live in relationship with forever. The whole point of what Jesus is doing there is he's saying, look, you're hung up on places. I want you to focus back on a person. You're hung up on a something. I want to call your mind back to the someone that we worship. Not about do you worship here or there, but you worship him in spirit and in truth because God is spirit and he is truthful and we worship him on his terms.
You can connect with him, Jesus says, based on who he is. You know, that it's difficult when you think of talking to others about Christ at times because we begin to think about all of the, the questions that we have to have answers to and all the questions that we don't even know that we have to have answers to. But the reality is that behind every question is a person. Jesus didn't care if the conversation was about water or if the conversation was about worship. At behind both of those start points, there's one ultimate summit, and that is God Himself. And He says, I'm going to follow whatever path you start, and I'm going to continue to point you back to, to Him. That's what God was offering to the woman. But it's so difficult at times for us to remember that because we think that it's about us having all of the right answers. But in reality, it's about us knowing the right person who over time can provide answers that people need. I came across a quote this, this last week from um, the author Anne Rice. I don't know if you're familiar with Anne Rice, but she wrote about 90 million, or sold about 90 million books. She didn't write 90 million books. That would be very old. She, she sold about 90 million books, um, largely in, um, you know, kind of fantasy fiction, vampires and that kind of stuff. Um, it's said that she violently left her faith when she was about 18 years old. Um, but later in life, in 1998, she came back to um, Christ and resumed her relationship with Him. And she, as a process of that, began sharing her testimony. She wrote some, some different things. And, and some of you may have heard parts of her story. Um, as time went on, Anne Rice uh, eventually got frustrated with the particular um, denomination of church that she was affiliated with and said, I'm quitting Christianity. Not quitting Christ, she said, but quitting Christianity. And so she's a complex person. Um, but she said something in one of her books that I think is very powerful and worthy of our consideration today. She said this in her book, Called Out of Darkness. She said, in the moment of surrender, I let go of all the theological or social questions which had kept me from God for countless years. I simply let them go. There was the sense, profound and wordless, that if he knew everything, listen to that, that if he knew everything, I did not have to know everything, and that in seeking to know everything, I'd been all my life missing the entire point. No social paradox, no historic disaster, no hideous record of injustice or misery should keep me from him. No question of scriptural integrity, no torment over the fate of this or that atheist or gay friend. No worry for those condemned and ostracized by my church or any other church should stand between me and him. The reason? It was magnificently simple. He knew how or why everything happened. In other words, if God is God and his ways are higher than mine, there's going to be things that I will not understand. There's going to be things that outstrip my ability to logic and reason it down. But I should not allow those things I don't understand to keep me from a God who desires to fill us with life itself, to keep me from the God who created us and is worthy of our worship and our praise. See, what Anne Rice is saying when she says that, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, but this is what I thought of when I heard the quote. 
She's pointing not back to a something, she's pointing back to a someone. And it was someone that she could trust. You know, as we seek to impact those around us for Christ, and as we offer them something that they need, we need to remember that that something is a someone. And we have the opportunity to point them to the person of Christ. You know, many of you know the the struggles and the difficulties that uh, my wife and I are going through right now, and that um, we've got this medical situation, and, and she's got... Uh, kidneys that are failing and is going to need a transplant, um, and we're on the process of all that. And, and, you know, there's a number of things that we're praying for in terms of healing. I appreciate so much all the prayers that you guys have offered with us in that regard. But one of the things that we're praying very much in the midst of this is that what people see and what is emphasized is Christ himself in the midst of this, that we have an opportunity in the particulars of our life to always point people back to that we have an opportunity in normal day of life to be able to say, you know what, this is awful, but we have peace because our God is a God of peace. You know, this is, this is uncertain, but we know the ultimate future is absolutely certain because we serve a God of certainty. Um, we, we, this, this, is, this is difficult, and you don't know how many people have gone through something like this, and you're, you're, you're wrestling to find information like that, but we're never alone as it pertains to a God who is with us always. You know, we have the opportunity to say that to nurses and to doctors and to friends and to family and, and to, to constantly be just a normal way of life, pointing not back to the questions of why and how and when and all that stuff, but to point back to the person of Christ who is with us in the midst of this. And you know what? I'll do that imperfectly and I'll do that in a fallen way. But that's our heart and our hope, and that's what we're praying for. And I, I, would, I would just encourage all of you, when you think through the, the circumstances and the situations of your life, when you desire to impact those around you for Christ, that what you would do in the midst of that is to think, how can I point people, not to a something, not to an answer, not to, but how, how can those answers even ultimately point back to Him? It's good for us to have answers to questions, and there are great answers to many of the questions, even that Anne Rice raises in that, in that quote. But ultimately, the answers that we provide ought to point back to the person of Christ who is worthy for us to trust Him. And we have the opportunity to point people to a someone, not just a something. Third thing we can see. We introduce others to someone who changed our lives. We introduce others to someone who changed our lives. The woman in verse 27, uh, her story continues. It says, just then, Jesus' disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, and she went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. See, the woman had had her life changed out by that well. Someone had come to her, the Son of God, and had said, I want to give you living water that will give you eternal life. I want to cleanse you from all of the sin that has stained you, and I want to to allow you to live in relationship with God forever. And he verified this, his ability to do this, by telling her things that no other way he would have known. And he told her that he was the Messiah. And, and she goes running back into town. We know that she left quickly because she left her water jar right there 
at the well. She goes running into town. And when she gets to town, she does not go and try to indoctrinate everybody. She doesn't show up with a, a long presentation. She doesn't, you know, first stop off and figure out every answer to every possible question that she could ever come up with. No, she goes running into town and she says, there's somebody out there that you have got to meet. There's somebody out there who has so impacted my life, I just want you to meet him. She didn't think that she had to do the changing. She thought that he was sufficient to do that, and she knew that she wanted to connect her friends, her family, the people that she worked with. She wanted to bring them out and introduce them to the Savior who could change their lives. You know, sometimes I think we get hung up on sharing about Christ because we think our role is bigger than it is. We think that it's our goal to change, to convince, to convict, to, 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 to force, to push, to prod, to, to whatever, to, to get the, the product of Christian on the other side. You and I do not have that power. You and I do not have that ability. We don't have that power over our children. We certainly don't have it over people that we see around town. You see, we do not have the ability to do what Christ can do, but, you, but what we do have the ability to do is to go to those around us and bring them to introduce them to Christ who can change them. And it's a very natural thing to do. You know, we live in a world where we share things all the time, right? I mean, you read an article um, and you share it on Facebook. You post it on your Twitter account. You forward an email to a friend. It's something that you read that's funny, that's interesting, that's, that's stupid, that's whatever. You'll share those things out far and wide. If, if not electronically, uh, you'll do it interpersonally. Somebody you'll see, oh, I just read this really funny thing. Let me tell you about it. So talk about it over the dinner table with your family. We, we talk about things that impact us. We talk about things that change us. Why is it then that, that we hesitate to talk about the one who has changed our life the most? Why is it that we hesitate to talk about the one who has saved our lives? The one that has identified us with him? I think part of the reason why is that we, we just have overestimated our role. We're, we're afraid that we can't change someone, so we, we clam up about ever starting. When in reality, what, what God is asking us to do is not to change someone, it's to introduce them to him. To, to go out and to, to bring them in and introduce them. And I think that, that we don't live in a world where Jesus is at the well of Sychar. So we, we get a little curious about how that plays out in our lives today. But, but, but make no mistake, we, we can do that today. Um, one of the, the famous phrases about the church is the church is the body of Christ. When you invite a friend to come to church, you're inviting them to be around Christ's body today to hear the things that he cares about, to hear his word, to see people treat others as he would treat them. You're inviting them to be introduced to Christ through his body. When you share a verse with somebody, you're inviting them to, to meet him through his word. When you, you hear a message and you share that, you give a, a, a message with an MP3 or a CD or whatever to a friend, or you read an article and you say, go. It's, what you're doing is you're introducing them to Christ. You're saying, I can't change you, but... This has really been impactful to me. I've gotten to know Christ more through this. Would you be 
interested in connecting that way also. The woman just went into town and said, hey, come back and see the man who has changed my life. And as believers in Christ, it's what God has for us as well. Fourth thing, our someone becomes their someone by his work. Our someone becomes their someone by his work. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, verse 31, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, what I'm doing right now is way more fun than eating a sandwich. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. See, it's a common thought. You, you plant seed, and after time, it ripens and blooms. What Jesus was saying was, I just cast some seed out with this woman and get ready. We don't have to wait four months to see this brought to fruition. Jesus was saying, I'm at work among the people of Samaria, and you're going to get to reap a harvest. It's interesting that he says the fields are white with harvest. But they guess at what the, the, the people of Sychar, who we know from verse 30, are walking out to the well. You want to guess what their predominant color of clothing was? It's white. Jesus was saying, look around you. It's white, and they're coming to be harvested. They're going to trust in me right now. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So that when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And get this, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It went from being the woman someone to their someone, and and went from her life being changed to their life being changed. And it was all because Jesus was at work drawing them to himself, and the woman merely got to participate and see it happen before her eyes. Can you imagine if you were known as the woman who was married five times? This is a small town, okay? Married five times, and the the, the man you're living with now is not your husband? That was her calling card. Not anymore. You know what she was known by? The woman who introduced the village to the Savior of the world. Jesus involved her very graciously in his plan. And Jesus desires to involve us very graciously in his plan to introduce those around us to him. He's already at work. He's already bringing those around us to harvest. He just invites us to participate by allowing us to introduce them to him. You know, this Easter season, we wanted to encourage all of us, me included, to think about how God might work through us collectively as a group. Um, to introduce people to him this season. And when you came in today, you probably got a card like this. If you didn't get a card that looks like this, um, you can pick one up. They're on the table right outside the, the door on, on that side. And, and the gathering hall, they're on the Welcome Center. You can grab one of these cards if you didn't get one already. 
But um, on the front, it talks about filled, and you heard my story earlier. Um, you all have a story, and I believe that God wants more stories uh, to happen in our, in our midst as we include and introduce others that we know to Christ. And so on the back side of this card, there's three blanks. I want to invite you to spend some time over the next couple of days and just think this through. Write the names of three people that you would like to invite to uh, Wildwood during this Easter season. Um, just prayerfully consider who God would have you to invite. You can take this card, you can put it on your mirror, you can put it on your desk, you can put it in your Bible, you can put it someplace where you're going to see that it will remind you over the next couple of weeks to, to be praying in this direction. Then a second thing we can do, this card is for you, but we wanted to have something that you could pass along to others. And so we have a, a digital invitation um, that just says Easter 2012. It has the information about Wildwood's worship services this Easter. We have uh, this available. We posted it on the city this morning. If you're on the city, if you're not on the city, we posted it on our website under the news section. Um, it says Easter digital invitation. You can download this. It's either a PDF or a JPEG, and you can attach it to an email, and you can send it to a friend. You can post it to your Facebook wall. It's just an opportunity for you to introduce to others the person of Christ around this Easter time, because we are going to be talking about Jesus here on Easter. And we would love to have the chance for all of us to introduce our friends, family, and co-workers to Christ this Easter. So two ways that you can apply practically some of what we talked about today. At this time, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And as the worship team comes on up and prepares to um, help us to close the service in song. I, I want to read for you a devotional that I read um, in a book. I have this book. It's, it's a 365-day church history book. It has something that happened in the history of the church for every day of the year. And um, there was something that just about uh, 10 days ago that was in here that really um, moved me, and I thought it connected with some of what we saw today in this passage. And I wanted to read it for us uh, as we close. It says, in 1856 in Ulster, Ireland, James McQuilkin was invited to tea. There, a visiting woman skirted the civilities of discussing the weather and spoke openly on a subject McQuilkin found uncomfortable, the condition of his soul. After another guest at the party described the nature of her Christian experience, the visitor said, my dear, I don't believe that you have ever known the Lord Jesus. McQuilkin later wrote, I knew that she spoke what was true of me. I felt as if the ground were about to open beneath me and let me sink into hell. As soon as I could, I left the company, and for two weeks I had no peace day or night. At the end of that time, I found peace by trusting the Lord Jesus. The following year, McQuilkin felt burdened to pray for his neighbors. He asked three friends to join him, and once a week the four men gathered at the village schoolhouse to pray for each other in the community by name. The town of Ahogil, County Antium, Ulster, Ireland, the date was September 1857. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to them, God was laying the same burden on many hearts and similar prayer groups started throughout Northern Ireland. Pastors began preaching about revival. In December 1857, McQuilkin's group rejoiced to see the first conversion in Ahogil, but widespread revival did not come. Still, God's people prayed for 19 more months. Then one morning in the city of Balamina, just six miles from Ahagil, a young man fell prostrate in the crowded marketplace and called out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The night of March 14, 1859, the McQuilkin group responded by inviting Christians to a prayer meeting at the Ahagil Presbyterian Church. The church was so crowded that they moved the meeting out into the street. 
There hundreds of people knelt in the mud and rain, confessing their sins and praising God. They were the first of 100,000 people God called to Himself in 1859 in what became known as the Ulster Revival. There was a great spiritual movement among young people. It was not uncommon for teenage boys to hold street meetings to reach their peers for Christ. At one such street meeting, an Irish clergyman counted 40 children and 80 adults listening to the preaching of 12-year-old boys. The results of the revival were remarkable. In 1860 in County Antrim, the police had an empty jail and no crimes to investigate. Judges often had no cases to hear. With their owners converted, pubs closed, and alcohol consumption fell so dramatically that whiskey distilleries were sold and gambling at horse races fell by 95%. A visitor to Ulster reported, thronged church services, abundant prayer meetings, Increased family prayers, unmatched scripture reading, increased giving, converts remaining steadfast. The Ulster movement touched off similar revivals in England, Scotland, and Wales. The author concludes, God drew hundreds of thousands of people to himself, and it all began with a woman unafraid to speak spiritual truth over tea. Let's pray and introduce our friend to Christ, who is enough to fill us. Please stand as we close the services.